the Defense Department is ready to get serious about transitioning its network defenses to zero trust. DOD expects to release a formal zero trust strategy by mid-September and wants to have a meaningful zero trust implementation in place by 2027. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, the department is already in talks with commercial providers on how to implement zero trust in the cloud, and it wants to start building out the concept as soon as October 1st. Last year's White House executive order on cybersecurity told all federal agencies to draw up plans to move to a zero-trust architecture. DOD first published its first reference architecture shortly before the EO and has since updated it to a 2.0 version. But defense officials say the strategy set to be released next month will lay out the specific steps DOD components and their vendors will need to take to implement zero-trust. John Sherman, DOD's CIO, speaking at a FedScoop event earlier this week. We are committed to implementing zero-trust at scale for our 4000000 enterprise that we lead. Not reinventing the wheel, not trying to do something that's already been tried successfully in one of the services, but building on all that. But what we're aiming for is by 2027 to have zero trust deployed across the majority of our enterprise and systems in the Department of Defense. That's an ambitious goal for those of you that are familiar with zero trust, but the adversary capability we're facing leaves us no choice but to move at that level of pace. DOD's definition of zero trust includes 45 separate capabilities organized around seven pillars. Users, devices, networks and environments, applications and workloads, data, visibility and analytics, and automation and orchestration. Randy Resnick, the director of DOD's Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office, says from there, the strategy will map out 90 separate activities that need to be accomplished. He says some are technology-related, but some are not. Zero Trust, I'm describing a IT solution, a, a cybersecurity IT solution, but there's also other things that need to be changed when you move to Zero Trust. Uh, your policy that might be uh, need to be upgraded. You might need to hire different sort of people. You have to have leadership informed of this and fully backing in the transition. You have training, which is going to be required. So all these other things are non-IT, but just as equally important as you move to zero trust because it is a radical change. Resnick says the strategy will also lay out three separate courses of action for zero trust. One, for applying the principles to DOD's existing IT infrastructure. A second, for implementing zero trust in commercial cloud environments. And a third, for government-operated private clouds. He says the department has already had early discussions with commercial cloud providers to gauge how well DOD's zero-trust definitions could map onto their computing environments. We've showed them and shared with them our definition of zero-trust and what they need to do in the cloud. We asked them, can we implement zero-trust in their current cloud? And they came back to us with numbers that seemed to indicate the answer was yes. So the next step is to independently evaluate their assertions which we believe we're going to get that body of evidence in maybe two or three weeks. Uh, That's going to be evaluated by likely NSA. And then we're going to pivot to a pilot because nobody's going to want um, just a guess being implemented in the DOD. We're going to have to run a pilot. Resnick says that pilot isn't officially planned yet, but he says officials are considering one that would use cloud environments the Army and Air Force already have running under their own contracts with commercial providers. We would roll in the zero trust overlay, as we're calling it, for that particular cloud solution. And then we would uh, document it heavily. How does it work? How do you configure it? Uh, Are there easier ways to do it? And then ultimately run apps and data through it uh, and ultimately run a red team against it to see whether or not that overlay actually exceeds that blue curve 
um, that we believe we did, again, stop the adversary. Because nothing is going to be rolled out in the DOD unless we know it's rock solid. So we will be doing pilots, multiple pilots, in fiscal 23 to do that. Those pilot projects will be one of the first priorities when the new fiscal year starts on October 1st. So far, the department has conducted just one small pilot using its own IT infrastructure. But other than that, the architecture and activities it's defined haven't been tested in a real-world environment. Another key question is what the IT industry, beyond cloud providers, will need to do to support DoD's strategy. One thing that's already clear, though, Resnick says, is that the department's needs can't be filled by any one company. No vendor could achieve the 90 activities in their product line. Vendors are going to have to team and integrate together in order to create a solution set for the Department of Defense. They're going to have to um, uh, come together. I'm making up a number. There might be eight or ten vendors, perhaps, uh, that have to all work together to generate uh, uh, an outcome uh, such that they get close or they hit the 90 activities. It's not up to us to say they hit it, meaning us, DOD, CIO. The RMF process is still in place. You have the concept of authorizing officials, which are still in place, and they're going to have to accept the risk based on the controls and the evidence uh, provided to them to ATO and network. But there's likely to be plenty of money in the DOD budget to support the effort. Resnick says department leaders have long recognized that the move to zero trust would be a multi-billion dollar project. And although Congress hasn't yet approved the DOD budget for next year, there is money set aside in the department's budget request. There's a myriad of reasons why uh, I would call technical debt uh, that we have not invested in in our own networks over the last 10 years, which, uh, which would indicate that we're way behind the eight ball. Uh, so people understand that if we want to really have a leap ahead and to fully change our networks that would actually stop an adversary, that is going to take a whole of the DOD, if not whole of government, to make happen. We don't know how much money it's going to take, but we're getting close because as the services get their hands on and they start implementing, they'll better understand what their gaps are and what it takes to fill those gaps and what vendors or uh, uh, capability there are to do that and uh, more accurate dollar figures uh, will come about. So it's very complex, but added dollars are being uh, implemented to help facilitate uh, the acceleration of zero trust adoption. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.